Now, if you had to uh, sum up our moment in history, uh, this page of history that we're in right now, what, what would it be? What would you be your summation of this moment? How does it read? Is it much different to pages of the past or perhaps those yet to be written? Uh, who are the history makers, the history shapers, the movers and shakers of our time? How would you sum up this page in history? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that no matter what page in the history book you turn to, this page, pages past or pages to come, and no matter where you turn, no matter what giants and history makers walk the stage, the history we find there can be summed up in the same sentence. It's a sentence repeated in many different forms throughout the scriptures. Uh, let me give you one of them. Exodus chapter 15, verse 18. This is the summation of all history. The Lord, God himself, reigns forever and ever. Every page of history is his story. The Lord who reigns forever, the King who reigns forever. And what the Bible declares is that every page of history is shaped by a promise this forever king has made. A promise he made to one man in one time, in one place. Uh, the man Abraham, uh, we, we spoke about him a few weeks ago, uh, who was promised a new land. This king told him he would raise up from this one man a whole nation of descendants. And through this nation, this king would bring blessing to every nation in this world in every page of history. Every page of history, past, present and future, is about this promise that this forever king makes. And every page of history, even the one that we are on right now, is one in which the forever king is calling us to trust and obey this promise. Every page shows us how this forever king fights to deliver this promise. And so as we turn the page to Deuteronomy chapter 3, we see a page of that history. Uh, here we see the very nation that became of this one man. It began with Abraham, now it is a huge nation. And uh, in these early chapters of Deuteronomy that we've been in, we're seeing them standing on the edge of the land that Abraham was promised, just on the edge. They stand there as this promise-making, promise-keeping, forever king commands this of them. Don't be afraid, he says. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Here on the edge of the promised land we see a people who have every reason to trust and obey this command. Every reason. Uh, all, all throughout their moment, their page in history, it's been filled with examples of how trustworthy, how mighty this king is to deliver on his promise. Uh, it began for them when they were slaves in Egypt, when this king rescued them out of Egypt with his mighty outstretched arm. He says, trust me, I will fight for you. And now here on the edge of the promised land we saw last week in Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, they've seen this mighty king walk up to King Sion and his kingdom and give it to them into their hands. Uh, a kingdom uh, that had caused their forefathers some 40 years earlier to fear and retreat now lie completely defeated before them. And so as we turn to chapter 3, we are going to see further demonstration of the Lord's mighty faithfulness. Do you see it there in verse 1? As they turn the road and head towards Bashan, there on the road in front of them is the mighty and wealthy, uh, the book of Amos tells us, and fearsomely big, if you look at verse 11, just see how big their king was, the army of King Og. 
charging at them in battle. But again the Lord, their king, repeats his battle cry in verse 2. Do you see it there? Don't be afraid, he says, for I've handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Don't be afraid. What happens when the forever king fights against a mighty king, even as mighty and as huge as King Og? Well, you see it there in verse 3, a summation of the battle. The Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army, and we struck them down, leaving no survivors. The victory is total. If you scan your eyes across verses 4 to 6, you'll see how absolutely every city of the kingdom that Og ruled over, every city is taken. The fortified ones and the ones without walls, all of them are taken without exception. The defeat is total. And not only is the defeat of the victory total for this forever king, the plunder is total as well. You see it there in verse 7? The forever king, who is in fact the creator of the ends of the earth, who declares even to someone like King Og of Bashan, he says, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me, even yours, King Og. He takes back from Og what is his. Takes from this pretend king, this rebel king, what was never his in the first place. It's a picture, in fact, of the destiny of anyone on any page of history who chooses to live opposed to this forever king. And it is also a picture for these people on the edge of the promised land. The Lord, who reigns forever and ever, is faithful to his promise and he is mighty to deliver on it, even over the strongest enemies, even King Og of Bashan. And he wants to fight for them because he wants them to enjoy this land with him. And here in Deuteronomy we have a huge moment in this promise. This promise that was made to that one man all those years ago. Here we have the first taste of the land being given to them. You see it there in verses 12 to 18 as these two kingdoms, the one we saw last week, Sion of Heshbon and now Og, these two lands are handed over by the conquering king, the Lord, to his people as a gift. Three of the twelve tribes of Israel are given a share in this land conquered so far. We're told in these verses that Reuben and Gad, those two tribes, are given Sion's whole kingdom. It's a gift, says God. And then half of Manasseh's tribe is given King Og's land. Can you imagine that moment? It reads as just a few lines on a page to us, but here is a people who have spent the last 40 years in constant movement. 40 years fleeing from Egypt, 40 years as refugees really. And then all of a sudden this supposedly mighty empire of Og's kingdom falls before them. And their home. And what a land. Uh, We're told in uh, the book of Amos that uh, Og's kingdom was rich and fertile. No wonder it was so heavily protected. And the Lord says of this land, his land, he says it's your land now. Look around, see if it does not take your breath away. You see it there. The Lord your God has given you this land to take possession of it. It's yours. And here we are reminded of something else about this forever king. Not only is he faithful, not only is he mighty to deliver on his promise, he is gracious and abundantly so. He says, this is your home. You've not earned it. You've not fought for it. I was the one who fought for it. I handed this army over to you. Come in and enjoy it with me. 
But then do you see what he says in verse 18 again? He says, But all your able-bodied men, armed for battle, all of them must cross over ahead of your brothers, brother Israelites. He says, uh, don't get too settled here just yet. There's more work to be done. And do you see why in verse 20? I want you to keep fighting until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they too have taken over the land that the Lord your God is giving them across the Jordan. And here we are reminded again of something even more about our Lord. He is abundantly gracious, yes, but his abundance does not stop just with these tribes, with Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. You'd be thinking if if you were one of these tribes, you've you've reached it, you've got your blessing that God is giving you, uh, you, you can rest. Well, no, the Lord has only just begun. He has more land to conquer. More brothers he wants to see share in this same blessing. And he will not rest until all his people are enjoying their rest together in his kingdom. And for him that means his people must not rest either. Must not rest until they see others enjoying this blessing with them. They are to fight with the Lord to see others share in it. Now I love these uh, verses because they fly straight in the face of our Western mindset. Straight in the face of our idea, even as Christians, I think, as Western Christians, where we, we think of our blessings, the blessings that are ours because of Christ, and we think of them individually. I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven. I have the wonderful hope of heaven that it's all taken care of. In the Western world, the fundamental social unit is the individual, but not in God's kingdom. Not in my land, says God. You are not an individual there. You are an individual in relationship. And to who? Well, do you see it there in verse 18 and then repeat it in verse 20 in case we miss it? To your brothers, of course. God's kingdom is a family, a very big family. He says here, come fight for your brothers that they too may enjoy the full share in his blessing. And I want to say, as you trace your way through scriptures, as then, so now, for God's people. Your most basic identity as a Christian all the way through the New Testament is as a child of God. That's who you are. And your most foundational relationship here on earth is as brothers and sisters to one another. This is your family all around you this morning. And so God would say the same thing to us. He would say, come fight for your brothers and sisters here in this place. Our our whole life as a church family is about doing this, fighting for one another's share in the blessings that God has on offer. And when we meet in our small groups, when we meet to pray for one another, we are fighting for one another's possession of the blessings that are ours in Christ. Fighting to keep one another passionate for him, fighting to be faithful to him, fighting to continue to be joyful in him, to be hopeful of the land yet to come. God would say the same to us. Come fight for your brothers and sisters here in this place. Come fight for Fullwood, for Sheffield. Fight for those who are yet to be our brothers and sisters but will be. God calls us not just to settle back on our own share of the blessings. Come fight for this city, he would say. Come fight even for the nation. That's what's so wonderful about seeing these three couples leave us Today it would be wonderful, isn't it? We just stay as a holy huddle enjoying the blessings God gives us here. But no, here you have three families who are going off to fight elsewhere. 
Come fight not just for this nation, but for the nations of the earth who God has promised he will bless. And that's what's so wonderful about the uh, Mission Explored course that's going on at the moment. Fifty-odd people who are exploring whether God has in mind for them a battle somewhere else, fighting for others' blessings. Wonderful, isn't it? Neil and Lucy Rogers and Tim Cudmore leading that course. Uh, pray for it. Pray that God will rise up, uh, rise up men and women who will go into this world, into the nations, to fight for others' blessings. And threaded uh, throughout these verses here in Deuteronomy 3 are three reasons to trust God's command here, to obey his command, to fight for others. You see the first of them in verse 19, he says, trust me despite the obvious risk. And you see what he says to the fighters who are to go ahead and continue to fight in the land over the Jordan? He says to them, I want you to leave your family and I want you to leave your livelihood, your, your livestock, your possessions. I want you to leave them here so that you can join me in the, uh, the fight that is ahead of us. And what's fascinating about this verse is it's a repeat of what happened 40 years ago. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 39, we're told that the previous generation, when they reached this point on the edge of the Promised Land, one of the excuses they used to not go in is they said, if we go, our families will suffer. Our livelihoods will suffer. We can't possibly do that. Our, our priority number one is our family. We, we can't go ahead into that land. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke 9 when he's calling someone to follow him and the person says this, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in my kingdom. The call here in verse 19 is for the new generation and we with them to avoid the unbelief of previous generations to be about God's purposes and trust him when he says your family, your livelihood are safe with me, trust me. Go and be about the task I have called you to. We are called to hold our priorities loosely and God's with increasing passion and that will involve cost. But God says trust me. And there's the first reason to obey and the second one you see there in verse 20, trust him knowing that rest will come, knowing that there will come a time when we, as we read in verse 20, that each of you may go back to take possession of what I have given you. There will come a time when our full reward will be ours to enjoy, to rest in. And not only our personal blessing that we have found in Christ, but the abundant blessing of sharing it with many others that we have fought for. There's a wonderful verse in 1 Thessalonians where Paul talks about his possession, his treasure that he's looking forward to. This is what he says. What is our hope, our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord when he comes? Is it not you, he says, speaking of the Thessalonians, speaking of those he has fought for? That's his blessing. And here's a third reason to trust this command. Verse 21 and 22. Perhaps the most significant of all. Trust him knowing it, that it is he who fights for you. And Moses knows that his days as leader of this people are numbered and now he gives a command to Joshua and he, once again it's the same command. It is, don't be afraid. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. And they're wonderful words, aren't they, to take into the year ahead of you. Whatever it holds for you, if you are about the Lord's purposes, he will fight for you. 
And I imagine uh, as these people stood on the edge of the promised land that would have stirred their hearts. Uh, as they gathered there, as uh, Moses, their great leader, spoke these words to them. Can you imagine the scene? Uh, before the battle, uh, they've seen kings, whole kingdoms fall. This great old leader, now over a hundred years old, but we're told at the end of this book, still strong, charging his people to go into battle once again. It's an amazing sight. The Lord's people would have been a brilliant sight that moment. I imagine something out of Braveheart or something. There is Moses, this hundred-year-old man with his staff, preparing them for battle. But then in this moment of euphoria, uh, Moses takes, uh, takes them back and he stops the excitement. He stops the talk of victory, both present and future. He stops the call uh, to fight for our brother's blessing. He stops them still with something very personal. Because they prepare to take this land, there is something they must remember. Now, I've got to be honest, as I've looked at this passage this week, you've got this amazing sweep of victory after victory. Everything is going so well. And then when, by the time you get to these last verses of Deuteronomy chapter 3, it all changes. Why go from this battle cry to this almost pathetic prayer by Moses, this desperate prayer that you see in verse 23? Well, let's see why. Here you have a humble petition by the servant Moses who has led this people all the way from Egypt, all the way to this moment. And he says this, At that time I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. I've seen it all. For what God is there in heaven or in earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? None. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. The land that we've talked so much about, the land that I'm anticipating that fine hill country in Lebanon. Let me see it. Let me, let me take off my sandals there just for a moment. I'm a hundred years old. It's not going to be for very long. Just let me stand there. Moses passionately pleads his cause. He's seen the Lord's promise coming. He's seen this moment that they've been waiting for coming. He says, I want to be there. It's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? I see what you're doing, Lord, and all I can say is count me in. I want to go to the place you're preparing. Now let me ask you before we go on in his prayer, tell me, do you have that same yearning for the land God has prepared for us, the new creation? Do you yearn for it like Moses does here? Let me see it. Let me, let me stand there. But look at the Lord's response. Verse 26. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me, said Moses, and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. It's a response the people needed to hear in the midst of their euphoria. Moses, even Moses, their strong leader, the great Moses, even Moses has been there since the beginning. Even the greatest among them had failed to trust and obey the Lord. Now, if you trace your way back through these early books of the Bible, you'll see there's two aspects of his failure. There is the personal failure as he refuses to follow God's instruction and in frustration bangs his staff against the rock and God tells him, as a result, you will not lead this people into the land. But then there is the corporate failure. He is part of the generation that was to die outside this land. The generation who had heard the law of God at Mount Sinai and yet had chosen not to obey it. 
a generation, although Moses was largely innocent of it, had chosen death, not life. And even Moses, with all his strength, even he was just one of them in the end. And the account of Moses falling short of the land is one of the most heartbreaking passages, I reckon, in the whole of the Bible. And you get all the way to the end of this book and we're still at this same moment. If you flick ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 34, you'll see it right there at the end of this book, this moment played out. God tells Moses, you won't enter the land, but what I will allow you to do is to climb up on a mountain and see it. See what's coming. You hear these words in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all of the land of Judah, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. When I said I will give it to your descendants and I will, I've let you see it with your eyes but you will not cross over it. And Moses the servant of the Lord died there in Moab as the Lord had said and he buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now I don't know about you, I reckon that's just one of the most uh, heartbreaking moments in the Bible but also just amazing. Who is it uh, that buries someone? It is their friend, their family, those closest to them. And here you have this great servant Moses who breathes his last looking at this land that is to come and it is his friend, his king, his lord who buries him. Such is the gravity of this moment that the whole book of Deuteronomy, some 30 chapters from chapter 3 to the end, uh, will not move beyond this point. In the 30 chapters in between, now Moses will once again detail this law that his generation had failed to keep. 30 chapters, that, knowing that he won't enter the land with them, he will teach them the law, knowing that this is the law that will cause things to go well for them in the land. He says, you need to know this law. Deuteronomy 3 shows us that Moses, even Moses, failed to keep the law. He is a great warning sign to this people. So keen to enter the land as they are, they must see this sign and what is it there to see what is the great warning sign now, were they to see from this that now things will be different the new generation will be different this is a new page of history a new age Joshua is a new leader and they're a new people things will be different this time I mean that's how we think as humans isn't it that we're going to be better than the previous generation we're going to do things better and smarter and more morally and all of those things And in one sense they'd be right, Joshua will lead them into the land and every city will fall under his leadership, just as been promised. But even just in the next chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 26, the future is betrayed. Chapter 4, verse 26, God says this, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are going across the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. 
The same law that found Moses wanting will expose their betrayal of this forever king and they too will fall. Moses is a warning sign but not so that they see their hope now in Joshua or themselves. As good a leader as Joshua was and he is, he and uh, all those who have followed him are no match for Moses. Again in Deuteronomy chapter 34 we're told, since Moses no prophet has arisen like him who the Lord knew face to face. No one as great as Moses came. So what are they to look for from this warning sign that Moses' own fall is? As I looked at it this week, this is the image that came into my mind. I'm not much of a musician, uh, but uh, one of the things that strikes me about the great pieces of music is they always seem to have a repeated refrain, uh, some sort of key note that keeps appearing. It often begins at the start of a, a piece of music as just a hint, just a few notes, but it grows and grows and grows into some sort of spectacular finale and that's how history works, his story. And the keynote that is repeated all the way through this chapter, do you see it? Moses has spoken it in such a way that he wants us not to miss it. It's the idea of a king. Now, some 15 times in this short chapter, the idea of a king and a kingdom is mentioned. And that's what's meant to grab our attention. Now, that's why Moses keeps saying it. That's why he's written this story, the account of these defeats the way he has. For as he falls, as he exits the stage, that's what they're meant to be looking for. Not Joshua, but for the forever king. The one who could restore blessing to a flawed people, who could make them his people again, in his place, under his rule. And as Moses falls, they need to look for the forever king. It should be obvious. And Moses has detailed it to be so. Do you see the way he described the account of uh, the defeat of King Og? The people are almost a sideshow. Yes, it would have been Moses who led the charge, but he knows that he charged into battle fearlessly because one far greater than him stood in front of him. The Lord who reigns forever, who handed whole kingdoms over to them. Now Moses wasn't a leader. He was a follower a follower of one far greater than him. And as he says at the end of chapter 3, I'm going to die, I'm not going with you. Look beyond me for victory, beyond Joshua, beyond even your coming failure and unfaithfulness to this forever king who is faithful and who fights for you even now. It's actually a king that's been predicted all the way through these early books of the Bible like some wonderful piece of music, the theme keeps reappearing. All the way back in Genesis 49 we're told that the king is promised, a king who will come from the tribe of Judah, a king who will restore God's place. In Numbers 24 we're told that king will restore, he will bring blessing to the nation. And Deuteronomy 33 the same is said, that king will sit on a mountain and his people will gather around that mountain as they did at Sinai and they will listen to his voice. Well, at the end of this book, Moses climbs the mountain and he dies and is buried by his friend, his king, his lord. And the people and we with them who see him fall are meant to go in search for the king who will come. To look beyond Joshua, look beyond the dark days that followed Joshua when there was no king in the land and everyone did as they saw fit. Beyond their desire for a king just like the nations who in the end will take from them rather than serve them. 
beyond even the great kings of Israel that will come, even David. All of them, like Moses, had feet of clay. Now we had to look across the aching gap of our broken world's history, all the way across to the one, the only one of whom the scriptures declares one greater than Moses is here. The king of Judah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who will be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We are to look to the one who proclaims this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here at last. To the one and only one who sees the law given at Sinai and obeys it fully, completely for us. To the one whose most common command is this, don't be afraid. To the one who fights for us and wins who there on his cross took on enemies far greater than King Og of Bashan. He took on our great enemies, our sin before this king, our rejection of him and the death that follows. Colossians 2 says this as we close, On the cross, Jesus, our forever king, defeated sin and death. Taking the full demands of the law and nailing them to the cross, he said, It is finished. And taking the full weight of our sins, he nailed it to the cross and said, you are forgiven. And then, and here you see why he can say, don't be afraid. Then he conquers even death, for it was impossible for death to hold him down. Turn to any page in history and you'll find written all over it, the Lord reigns forever and ever. He is the king who by his victory offers forgiveness where there is sin and offers life where there is only death, who calls us to trust him. That's our king. I wonder, do you know him? Well, if yes, then hear his command again this morning. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Fix your eyes on your faithful, mighty, gracious king this week. And if you're here this morning and you do not know this forever king, who reigns even now, even over your life. He speaks this day that you might come to know him and trust him. Now you might be of the view that you have no need of a king, you are in charge of your own life, but the truth is when you see the enemies on the road ahead of you, armed for battle, the enemy of your own sin before your creator king and the enemy of your own certain death, then you must realise you have no weapon in your armoury powerful enough to defeat them. And so to you, the king says, don't be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Repent and believe. Let's pray.